This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Well, thank you guys for being here today. We are in the last week of a series that we have called Blueprints, Blueprints for a Better Marriage, looking at God's instruction as it's given to us in the Bible that our relationships might be strengthened, that God might, through His grace and mercy, challenge us in our complacency because we've realized that normal is not working. How many of y'all know that? Normal is not more. We don't want normal marriages. We don't want a normal relationship with Jesus because normal is not working. And so to do that, we wanted to go back to the Bible. Let me just kind of let you know where we're going to go for the next few weeks. Starting next week, we're going to start a brand new series called The Center of It All. All right, The Center of It All. And for, for three weeks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on what the the center of everything in your life should be, okay? I, I promise you that there's probably no greater message that we could share with you that can have a dramatic day-to-day impact on your life than addressing what's at the center of it all, all right? And that starts next Sunday. Really don't want you to miss that. It's going to be a great series. Um, but today... We kind of really need to to get focused in. This is, I think, probably the most important message out of this series. We've been really practical. We've been really helpful up until this point. But the truth is is that we, we have exposed normal marriage for what it is, something that we don't want, right? We live in, in, in a culture that has defined marriage as a, as a contract. Right? You do your part, I'll do my part. Together, we'll get this whole thing done. But we, we've looked at God's Word. God's Word tells us that, that it is not a contract. It's, it's a covenant. And if we don't want normal, we don't want to do what normal people do. We don't want to live what normal people are living. We don't want, want, want what's normal in our relationships. We don't want divorce. We don't want tension. We don't want to live with the same kind of stupid lives that many people are pursuing in our world. We want to pursue what God points us to. And even though that's not easy, it's far better than anything else we could do. So I thought it would be wise as we get ready to start to go back to the very moment that God created and drafted the covenant of marriage. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and you'll see this here. This is the, the moment right after Adam and Eve have, have, been, have been created. They've been brought together, and, and Adam has received her as as his wife. And so God says this. This is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. That that term they become one flesh appears five different times in all the Bible. 
it, it, it's this pervasive way that God begins to talk about what a covenant looks like. That the two who have existed in their own entity, the two who have done their own life, the two who have had their own ways about them, the two who come from two different families, two different backgrounds, two different precepts, the two will become one. That's God's plan for marriage. That in marriage, God plans that the two lives that are represented will become one life that is lived together. That's God's plan. It's been his plan from the very beginning that we would cease to be that individual, that we would take on a joint identity that the two would become one. But I want you to think about this with me. Let's think about the way the progression towards marriage that is the norm. And, and really, through, if we took a, 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 an interview and a survey of many of you, we would find that this has been the more normative pattern in our culture of progressing towards marriage. What does it look like? Well, a boy and a girl start dating. They like each other. Right? So what happens? After a while, they, they feel like it's a little bit more convenient. So on the weekends, one stays with the other. Right? Because it's convenient. And after a while, the question begins to arise, well, if we're doing this, why don't we just move in together? It would be cheaper. Right? It would be more convenient. We can actually spend time together. We'll actually be together most days. So they do that. They move in together. And they figure out some convenient way to split up the money. So you take care of the rent. I'll take care of the utilities. They're about the same. We'll go buy our own food. But if we've got to buy food together, we'll kind of chip in together or we'll take turns. And so they begin to progress on, right? Till it comes to a point that they realize, you know, we've been doing this for a while. We like each other. We've been committed. Why don't we get married? And then they get married and nothing changes. Their life still looks like it did a few months before. But let's go back to a traditional pursuit of marriage. A boy and a girl meet each other. They like each other. They eventually start thinking about, well, hey, I think it would be smart if, if you know, we spend the rest of our life. We're, we're committed to each other. And so the boy begins to plan, and one day he drops down on one knee and asks the girl to marry him. Now, in between that moment and the wedding day is something that we call an engagement. Now, in our culture, most of us would say that that period of time is to do what? It's to plan a wedding, right? I want to correct you a little bit today. That period of time is not to plan a wedding. That period of time is making the preparations for the two to become one. I want you to understand that the other trajectory, the normal trajectory, actually sets you up to live as two people instead of one. Still have your own finances, still have your own way of life, still have everything else is still individual because the relationship arc that de kind of developed out of moving in together right, allowed you to remain independent. It allowed you to remain as yourself as opposed to embracing the covenant, 
not the contract of marriage. See, God's plan is real simple. That we would, in the context of marriage, become one. And I want you to see today that all of this talk about marriage is really a talk about something that is broader and bigger than marriage. That God has hidden within the the institution of marriage a great mystery and picture that the world desperately needs. You see, there's there's a power when two people, three people, four people choose to become one. And we find that in Genesis 11. Not too long after the Adam and Eve story is done, the dust has settled, the world is beginning to form and populate. God tells us a story in Genesis 11 about a group of people who all spoke the same language and came up with a common goal. Their goal was quite simple. God is big. He is high above the earth. And so what we'll do is we'll build a tower that will allow us to climb and ascend to the height of God. We call it the Tower of Babel. And God in this moment looked down on them, not in concern or worry, but he made this proclamation in Genesis 11 verse 6. I want you to see what the, the God of the universe said about a group of people who had one singular vision. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Think about that with me for a moment. The stated purpose in Scripture for marriage is that two people will become one. If we just fast forward a few chapters in the story, God is telling us that if a few people will become one, nothing can stop them. Now think about that with me. There is a great power in being one. There there is a a hidden agenda that God has, has put inside of marriage that is important for all of us. We have to think about that. What does it mean to be one? You see, there's kind of two implied meanings in the English language. One of those is, is just simply this, that, that you would be singular by yourself. You'd be one. Hey, look over there. There's one guy. There's one girl, right? But there's another meaning, and that's really the meaning that the Bible is kind of getting at here, that two people, three people, four people would be united in unity. The word unity, y'all think about this with me. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is often translated unity does not necessarily translate great to unity, but it translates to this saying the same thing. See, 
when all of those people in Genesis 11 decided that they would build a tower and ascend to take God's place, God crafted a plan and he came down, dispersed the people and confused them by giving them different languages. It's where the origin of all of our different languages around the world is ascribed to in the Bible. God confused them. They were no longer able to be one because they said different things. But when we become unified, when we unify our hearts, when we become one, there is great power. So today what I want to do is I want to read a passage of Scripture. It's one of the five passages where the the Bible references the Two will become one flesh. It's out of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Follow along with me on on the screen. Do you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? No, never. And you don't realize, and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are unified into one. But listen to this, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, You see, Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth where sexual immorality was rampant, okay? There were were, uh, temples in the middle of Corinth where where there were literally sexual acts happening in, in the form of worship in the middle of that temple, all right? So he's writing to a church that's dealt with sexual immorality, and he's saying, hey, here's God's plan that the two will become one. But think about that. If, if the one man joins with a prostitute, he's become one with her. That's a bad thing. That's not good. Because now he has become flesh, one flesh with something that he's not supposed to be. But then he drops a little nugget on us. And he says, but those who are one with the Lord are one in spirit. You see, oneness is a little bit more pervasive. It's a little bit bigger than just the concept of sex. Okay, oneness is a deeper, more real reality that infects and affects everything in life. And God's design is that marriage should be a catalyst for creating oneness in all of our relationships. I want you to see that. The last few weeks we've looked at Ephesians 5. And I want you to see something that you may never have noticed before. And I want you to see what God says about marriage in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. As the scriptures say, Again, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. The two will become one flesh. Now look at this. This is a great mystery, but it is an 
illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. You see, marriage has been given to us. Marriage has been designed to point us to a a grander reality. It's designed to be a, a living illustration of a relationship with Jesus. And so today, I'd like to help you by addressing the the pervasive need that we have for oneness. We're going to look at certain dimensions, but first I think it's just more helpful to think about what does it mean to become one? See, the thing is, is that in a relationship, especially in a marriage, you don't become one. Listen to this. You don't become one by giving up who God created you to be. Well, this is important, y'all. You do not become one by giving up who God created you to be, by giving up your personality, your strengths, or your gifts. I want you to understand something about Genesis 1 as the Bible describes the creation of man and woman. It says that oftentimes we, we kind of interpret this as the, in the image of God, God created man, right? That's not what the Bible says. In Genesis 1, the Bible says, in the image of God, male and female, he created them. So if you're looking at a, at a male, you're only looking at part of the image of God. If you're looking at a female, you're only looking at part of the image of God. It's the combination of the two that creates and presents the whole image of God. You see, you're not supposed to give up your identity to become one. But I want to give you three things that you have to give up if you're ever going to become one. The first thing you have to do is you have to give up your agenda. You have to give up your agenda. And you may say, I don't have an agenda. Well, maybe that's your agenda. All right. You don't want to do anything. Maybe that's your agenda, all right? You have to give up your agenda to become one. Let me tell you something that happens when you give up your agenda that nobody thinks is going to happen and is altogether too surprising for people, but I want you to know that this waits for you when you're willing to do that. When you lay down your agenda, God will give you his purpose for you. When you stop telling God the way that your life is supposed to be, and you start listening to him to direct your life, he's going to direct you to his purposes. Number two, we need to be willing to lay down our will. To be one, you have to let go of your will. You have to let go of life going your way. You have to stop thinking that it's always going to be your way or the highway because nobody is going to do it your way all the time. I mean, the truth is is that God is probably a little bit smarter than all of us, right? Jesus is brilliant. And when we look at his plan, oftentimes we just go, yeah, I might try that. 
And you expect everybody else to do exactly what you think when the creator of the universe has told you what's right and you refuse to do it. Probably not going to work out that way for you. So we need to be willing to lay down our will to live in oneness. And the third thing, I want you to see this. God, this is so important. You need to be willing to lay down your life. Your life. Jesus is the perfect illustration of what it takes to become one. Because Jesus looked at us and realized that if we were ever going to get it right, the only way we could get it right was if he got it right first. And so he chose to die but you want to you want to think what, what what most people kind of propagate as the gospel within our culture is that Jesus died so that we can have the most amazing life ever. And I'm not going to like sit here and downplay the fact that I do believe that following Jesus is the best way to go about living. But let me be clear with you on something. If you're going to live in covenant with God, if you're going to live and experience that oneness with God, you have to do the same thing Jesus did. You have to die. There is no supplement to that. There is no substitute for that. You have to die. But see, there's great power when we choose to be one. The Bible is so clear. As we read through Ecclesiastes, we find that if one falls, they're in trouble if they're by themselves. But if one falls and they're with somebody else, there's comfort and help. And in Amos 3, we see this, and this is important, this quick statement. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? The implied answer to that is no. You can't. You can't do this. You can't live in oneness in your life unless you've accepted the direction collectively that you need to go. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through three different dimensions that we need to become one in. Three different dimensions. The first thing that we need to be one with is we need to be one with our spouse. We need to be one with our spouse. Let me just review a little bit that, that there is a grand difference between thinking about your marriage as a contract where you work to keep as many, as many rights as you can. You don't take the responsibility for things. There's a grand difference between that and a covenant where you lay down your rights and you pick up the responsibilities. God designed marriage to be a covenant. And it's important in that for you to understand this. God did not institute marriage to make you happy. If your greatest complaint about your marriage right now is this, that you're not happy, there's a grand problem with you. It's not your spouse. 
Because God doesn't want us just to be happy in a marriage. God wants our marriage to make us holy. God wants to use that as we pursue oneness with our spouse to point out things that we would never know about ourselves if it wasn't for that level of intimacy. Now, I shared last week that part of your job, wives, is that you will honor your husband even when you understand his weaknesses. And part of your job, husbands, is that you won't look down on your wives. You won't degrade your wives because you understand their weaknesses. Because in the context of a healthy marriage, all of those things come to the surface. And God doesn't want you necessarily to be happy. It's not designed as a tool to make you happy. It is designed as a tool to make you holy. Which is why I want you to think about this with me. If you're an an adult or a young adult and you're here today and you're single, I want you to understand that the Bible talks about singleness as a gift, not as a curse. And you may be single for your life or you may be single for a season. But I want you to understand that in that singleness, God is communicating to you that for now or for a lifetime, you you don't need that. You need me. As a matter of fact, when the Bible communicates about those who are single compared to those who are married, it describes us that are married as being the weaker ones. Because we need that. We need that intimacy so that we can get closer to the Lord. You, however, have been given a gift, maybe for now, maybe for a while, or you don't. The second thing that we need to be one with is we need to be one with our church. We need to be one with our church. Think about this with me, guys. Let's go back to the Tower of Babel. There's a a group of people who have said, you know what, we're going to build as simple as it sounds, a tower that goes all the way up to God. And when we get there, we will be as strong and as powerful as Him. And God said, They're all speaking the same language. They're all going about this unified. Their hearts are together. There's nothing that can stop them. See, in in America, we have worked really hard in the context of the church to identify ourselves and how we're different. Not talk about how we're the same. See, we have at this church one simple vision. We want to see people who are far away from God come close to Him. We want to invest in that journey for them so that they can be closer to God, so they can experience Jesus at the center of everything in their lives. Mark 3, Jesus speaking. The Bible says this. If a kingdom 
is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. I want you to understand that as we grow, as we continue to take steps forward, you're going to hear a lot of no from me. Hey, Kevin, can we do this? No. Can we be a part of this? No. Hey, we need to do this. No. And I want you to understand why you're going to hear no. Because our church exists for one simple purpose, and that's to reach lost people, help them find healthy relationships with people who love and care about them, and then for us all to have a place to serve God and grow as we follow him. We're not going to become a country club. We're not going to try to entertain a bunch of people. We're going to go after that. That's our goal. And the truth is is that if we can all say that, if we can all make that our goal, there's nothing that can stop us. Nothing. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty pretty awesome. To be one with your church, you have to give up your agenda. You have to give up your will and you have to be willing to lay your life down to serve God. Churches aren't very healthy when everybody in the room has their own deal that they want to be a part of, their own little thing that they're trying to run. We're all going to run the same play. It's a play God gave us a long time ago and we'll continue to run it until God calls a different play. The last thing that you need to be one with is with your God. With your God. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible points us to a reality that's important for us to understand today. That while we are given the capacity in a relationship to join one flesh to another. God has leveraged for us the possibility of growing with Him, moving towards Him, and becoming one with God Himself. That we can be one with God. But I want, you to, I want to remind you of something I said earlier, and it's just this. That if you want to be one with God, you have to die. There is no other option. There is no other option. So let me ask you a question that is very biblical as we get ready to close today. When are you going to die? When are you going to die? Because you can make the decision to die. Or at some point, God will make the decision for you. say that again. So you can make the decision to die, or at some point, God will make that decision for you. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. That is the solution to every single crisis in marriage. You see, when you're dealing with two dead people in a marriage, you don't have problems. You don't. They've laid down their rights. They've given up their agenda. They've put down their lives so that they can serve and love each other. You see, the problem is is that some of us, like one great preacher said one time, we like to sit up in the casket. 
we've died, but we kind of like to come alive a little bit every once in a while. Can I tell you something about a covenant? In a covenant, the dominant person in the covenant dies first. Jesus chose to die for you so that you could die and give your life up for him. You see, the solution to all of our marriage problems is not a bunch of self-help books, Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Oz, right? Our greatest hope is that we would die so that we could live in oneness. That's our greatest hope. That's really what we're always pointing to someone to when it comes time to counsel them. Anytime we're dealing with marriage counseling, we got a couple of live people that we're dealing with. See, the dominant one has to die first. And I want you to understand, that doesn't mean the husband is always going to die first. As a matter of fact, if you read the books that Peter wrote, you'll find that in his instructions, he points wives who have unbelieving husbands to die to themselves. Because their death will give their husband an opportunity to come to Jesus. You see, you can choose when you're going to die. I want you to understand that today. Because for you to be one with Jesus, you have to be dead. I want to read a passage that you may have heard before, but I want you to think about what's really being said here. It's Galatians 2.20, such a popular, beautiful verse penned by the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. And now listen to what the Bible says in light of what we've talked about today. And I no longer live. I chose to be crucified with Christ, and now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, in my body, this, bo- this life that is happening, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when we make the choice to die, God nails us onto the cross with Jesus, but something miraculous happens in our bodies after that moment. The life that we live from that point, it is not sustained by our own will, our own desires. It becomes sustained by God himself. Paul says, I no longer even live, but it's Christ who lives in me, and I live by faith in him. You want to know what the solution to all the marriage problems is? It's that. And God is pointing us to something that is grander than that. We don't have a marriage problem. We have a oneness with Jesus problem. Because marriage doesn't just point at marriage. It points at our relationship with Him. And if we're ever going to live one with our spouse, if we're ever going to experience oneness on earth, we have to live one with Him. Because He is the God that takes two and becomes one. He chose to bring that about in the context of marriage. And He's offered that to you in his relationship with you if you're willing to die 
Let's pray. God, we thank you that even in the midst of our own struggling to try to sustain life as we think it should be, that you're the kind of God who refuses to let go of us. God, that you're the God who pursues us recklessly and hopelessly. God, thank you that you're the God that, that would come even when we have worked our, our tails off to try to sustain a life that is far away from the plan that you have for us. God, that today you would invite us into a relationship where we can be one with you. And God, when we are one with you, when we've chosen to pursue that, there's nothing that can stop us. God, when, when our church chooses to become one together and to pursue the calling to run the play that you've called us to at, with passion and unity, God, there's nothing that can stop us. And when married couples in this room choose to die to themselves and embrace unity and oneness in their marriage, there is nothing that can stop them. So by your grace and mercy today, God, do that for us. With nobody looking around, let me just ask you a simple question today. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want you thinking about you right now. Are you living in oneness with Jesus. Are you living in oneness with Jesus? You can't do that at home with your spouse. You can't live that way in a church if you're not living in oneness with Jesus. And He's offered that to you today. All you have to do is respond to His initiative. that's you. Nobody's looking around. It's really just a moment for you between you and God. Today, would you say, that's me. I want that. I want to live one with God. I, I want to put this selfish, self-centered way of living away. I'm willing to lay down my rights and my agenda so that I can live for Him. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now? That's awesome. Who else in the room? Today, if you're here and you've been struggling in your marriage and you realize that the problem has not been your spouse, the problem has been you, and you can change everything by choosing to die, maybe you'll be the first one in your marriage. Maybe you'll be the, the, uh, it'll be a while before your spouse responds. But today, maybe God has called you to take that initial step to die to yourself. you raise your hand if that's you today? God, we want you to be that person in our marriages today. God, we thank you for those people who have said that they're willing to die. They're willing to embrace you as their leader, their Lord, God, and that today you'd be their Savior. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray.